I remember many years ago picking up a Max Lucado book way back. Lucado, Lucado, potato, potato, however you say it. And, uh, and there was just one thing he, he said at the very beginning of the book where he said there are all kinds of things that people do to and about the cross. There's one thing that they cannot do with the cross of Jesus. And that's they cannot stop talking about it. And we're going to talk about the cross tonight. Perhaps the most difficult uh, teaching of the year. The most painful because when you start to get to know Jesus, you fall so in love with Jesus that the thought of harm coming to Jesus is not something that we want to hear. And yet it's something we need to hear. It is something that is central to the Gospel story. Central to our salvation. And so, the cross tonight. And we will pick up at the end of Luke chapter 22. And Father, even as we turn there, we just pray for Your grace. Lord, to hear everything we need to hear. Not, Lord, to dwell on things simply for shock effect, but but to be made aware of the truth. And to see in all these things the extent of Your love. And Your grace and Your compassion, which is not something of the stories of the past. It is, Lord, something we need to know here and now tonight. We need revelation of Your nature. And we need to understand, before we try to figure out all the circumstances and messes and difficulties and challenges of our lives, we need to start at that point knowing that You revealed Yourself as compassionate and gracious and good, Father. And so may we see these things from that perspective and even understand a little more of the depth of Your love for all people and Your desire that everybody be saved. And I pray, Father, ultimately, somehow, that salvation will come, even through this teaching tonight. Even, Lord, if there's not somebody here tonight who is, who is not saved, if, there's, if everyone here, if we're a, a room full of believers, Father, that somehow these words, this teaching, will reach the ears of someone lost. And they will just sit back and say, Wow, that God loves me that much. Bless this time. And reach our hearts, Father, by the power of Your Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. So the final inspection of the Lamb before the Paschal sacrifice involves six different trials. Six separate trials that Jesus endured on that night. First, before Annas. Annas was not the current high priest. He had been the high priest, but around uh, A.D. 15 he had been deposed by Rome. But he was still considered by the people to be somewhat legitimate, though he was not in the office, and they did respect and honor the fact that Caiaphas was high priest. They often went first to Annas, the older Annas, the more wise, or so they thought, Annas, and they took Jesus there first. Luke doesn't tell us that. John tells us that in John chapter 18, verse 3. From Annas, they would go to the house of Caiaphas, a house that has been unearthed actually many years ago, archaeologically in Jerusalem. We know where it is with a high degree of accuracy. From the house of Caiaphas, then they would convene the next morning the Sanhedrin, 
that Jewish ruling council of the 70, and they would gather around, although the entire 70 were probably not there. I can think of two who were absent that meeting. Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, more about them later. From the Sanhedrin, after, after deciding that he was worthy of death, they sent Jesus on over to Pilate. Pilate didn't know what to do with him. Finding out that Jesus was a Galilean, he said, Oh great, I'll send him over to Herod. That's Herod's jurisdiction anyway. And he copped out and sends Jesus back across the city to the palace of Herod, who was in the city at the time. And Jesus would go, then go through his fifth trial. Herod, not being able to do anything with him, sends him back to Pilate for the sixth and final trial of the night. So Luke bypasses that first stop at the house of Annas and takes us directly to the second trial at the house of Caiaphas, verse 54, Luke 22. Having arrested him, they led him away and brought him to the house of the high priest. But Peter was following at a distance. After they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter was sitting among them. And a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the firelight and looking intently at him, said, This man was with him too. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. A little later, another saw him and said, You're one of them too. But Peter said, Man, I am not. After about an hour had passed, Another man began to insist, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he is a Galilean too. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you were talking about. Quoting Zechariah 13, verse 7, Jesus had warned them of this. Jesus said in Matthew 26, 31, You will all fall away because of me this night. Not just Judas, not just Peter, all would fall away. Jesus said, For it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. And they were. From the Garden of Gethsemane, they were scattered. They fled in every direction. Peter and John trailed after Jesus away, ducking into the shadows, ultimately coming to Caiaphas' house. John, we find out from the Gospel of John, was known by Caiaphas and so at least got entrance into the courtyard probably got Peter in there as well but they're still hanging back they're still following at a distance John silently in the shadows we don't hear much about but Peter (laughs) Peter did not go quietly into that dark night Peter never did things quietly but you might wonder how just a few hours earlier when Peter said, I will go to my grave with you. I, I, will, I will fight. I'll go to prison for you. I'll die for you. And Jesus says, Peter, before the rooster crows three times, or after, as the rooster crows three times, you, you're going to deny me. Well, how do you go from brave to cave so quickly? <clears throat> Peter was following at a distance. Verse 54 tells us that. He followed at a distance. And so following at a distance, no wonder his first denial was, woman, I do not know him. You see, you can't know Jesus by following him at a distance. The only way you can know Jesus is to get as close to him as possible. To press in. To spend time with him. To talk to him. To seek Him out. James says, draw near to God and He will draw near to you. James 4.8 The psalmist said in Psalm 73.28, As for me, the nearness of God is my good. 
I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. My refuge, the place that I go. The person in whom I hide. Not the shadows. I will make you my refuge. I want to be as near to you as possible because the more near I am to Jesus, the better off I am. But if I'm trailing off at a distance, I cannot know Him. Not really. You could say there's no such thing as distance learning in Christianity. You don't get online and find out about Jesus. You want to know Jesus, you stay close to Jesus. And verse 55 is interesting. It says, after they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter was sitting among them. His second problem, not only was he trailing off at a distance, but Peter is now sitting among these people. He's detached from the rest of the guys and he's joined the crowd. He's sitting among those who are warming their hands at the fire of the enemy. And so, of course, then the second denial comes along. Man, I am not one of them. I'm one of you guys. I'm here with you. And you can't stand for Jesus and sit down with the enemy. And I think far too many of us and I say us, do this far too often. Well, I am a Christian. Yeah, I'm a believer. But on this particular night, I know I'm in enemy territory, but it's entertaining. And I'm having fun. And it's not, I know my heart. It's all good there. You cannot stand for Jesus if you're sitting down with the enemy. Psalm 1 verse 1, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scoffers. How comfy are you among those who deny Jesus? Now this is, this is the line we walk as followers of Jesus. This is the tough one. We have to walk that line between speaking the gospel to a lost world while not getting comfortable with a lost world. Being with non-believers who have no sense of the Lord, no sense of His righteousness, no sense of His grace, and yet not engaging in the things that the world engages in. Not embracing the fires of the enemy. How do we do that? Lots of prayer. You stay close to Jesus. You stay right by Jesus. You don't go anywhere without Him. You take Him with you. And if He wouldn't be there, you don't go there. Well, good, because Jesus ate with, you know, drunkards and sinners. Right? Jesus knows your heart, and you know your heart. And you stay close to Jesus. John wrote some pretty direct words about the way we associate and the way we fellowship and those who we connect with. He said in 1 John 2, verse 22, Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? But he goes further. John says, This is the Antichrist. The one who denies the Father and the Son. The Spirit of Antichrist. Which John said was already at work in the world 2,000 years ago. There is a Spirit of Antichrist. I believe the very spirit that will fill this man that the Bible refers to as the son of perdition, the man of lawlessness, Antichrist. A spirit, a demonic presence that will fill him until Satan ultimately takes over in that time of tribulation. 
And so that spirit's running around and inviting people and challenging people and causing people to deny the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And John says, these people are liars if they deny the Lordship of Jesus. Again, I'm not talking about a non-believing friend or family member of yours who hasn't really denied Christ, they just really haven't accepted Him. They just can't go that far. They're not outwardly, you know, blaspheming Jesus. But those who are, the Bible calls them liars. And I would say you've got to be very careful having anything to do with someone in that position. Because you can't stand with Jesus and sit down with the enemy. Denial is the language of the Antichrist. Denying Jesus. And we may think, you know, I could never deny Jesus. Peter thought that. I could never deny Him. Problem is, distance leads to detachment, which leads to then denial. And if you want to start down the road of denial, just step back a bit. Just move to the back of the bus or the back of the pack. A little further out. Cut down on all your church going. First of all, that's a big problem right there. If you're you're here... Every Sunday and every Wednesday and you're opening your Bible in between, man, you know what? That, that, that's going to keep you from denying Christ. I know I'm talking kind of backward here. The distance, detachment, they bring about denial. And by Peter's third denial in verse 60, notice that he repudiates any connection whatsoever, even his shared Galilean heritage. Well, you've got, you sound like a Galilean man. I don't even know what you're talking about. And I imagine at that time Peter perhaps adopted a different accent. Tried not even to sound Galilean. He is now so far out in his denial as to say, I'm not even from the same region as Jesus. Hmm. Verse 60, continuing on. Immediately while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. <laughs> And there it is. He denied Christ three times and the rooster crowed. And verse 61, one of the most passionate, in my opinion, verses in Scripture, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Luke's the only one that tells us this. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had told him before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Luke, again, is the only one to tell us Jesus At the third denial of Peter, when the rooster crowed, Jesus made eye contact with Peter. Looking across that courtyard, through the smoke of the fire, and Peter sees the Lord looking directly at him. How personal is Jesus? How much does one person matter to Jesus? Jesus is being taken into the trials of his life, and yet he's concerned for Peter. And he hears that denial. And he makes eye contact. And you know what? That's all it took to snap Peter out of it. All he needed, kind of like when he stepped out of the boat, all he needed was to see Jesus eye to eye. Take his eyes off Jesus, down he goes. That's what he did in the denials. His eyes were off Jesus and were on to protecting his own hide until he gets eye to eye with Jesus again. Peter who had faltered. Peter who who fell apart. But his faith hadn't quite failed. How do we know? Because when he gets eye to eye with Jesus, he breaks. And he goes out and he weeps. And repentance 
repentance comes. A true godly sorrow. Not the kind of sorrow Judas had. We've talked about that. Judas' sorrow was the worldly sorrow that brings about death. But Peter had a godly sorrow. And he wept. And Jesus, you may recall, said in Luke 22.31, Shimon, Shimon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned again, and Jesus knew He would, Jesus knew the repentance would come, when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. You know, I need eye contact with Jesus. That's what keeps me close. It's what keeps me connected. It's what keeps me confirmed in Christ Jesus is eye contact. What are you talking about? How do we, how do we get that? Hebrews 12.2 Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. You want eye contact with the Lord Jesus? You look at everything having to do with Jesus, whether it be His Word, whether it be talking to Him in prayer, whether it be watching what He's doing in the lives of other believers. What a blessing it is when we sit over here and we pray every, every Wednesday night. I just keep recognizing how God is moving and working in people's lives. You get to watch that happen. And that is another way to keep your eyes on Jesus. Look at what He's doing in someone else's life. Pray for other people. One of the hidden blessings of praying for someone else is you get to watch God work. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Titus 2.13 gives us another way. Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus. A lot of people were looking at the blood moon. Did you see it? Anyone? Did you? Okay, a couple people. Saw, I saw it. I was down in Seattle and we got a big view of it. Interesting. For me, the only exciting thing about the blood moon is the possibility, perhaps, perchance, that it might indicate something else. Whether or not it does, I don't really care because I know Jesus is coming and I am looking for His appearing. Eyes on His coming. I want to see eye to eye with Jesus. I want eye contact with the Lord. Jude writes in verse 21 of his tiny little letter, Keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. All Peter needed in this whole scenario. Jesus, I I can tell you this with absolute certainty. Jesus did not look at him to make him feel worse. Jesus wasn't looking at him to catch him in the act. You know, he looked at him in the same way he looked at the rich young ruler with love. He looked with love. Jesus is always looking at people. In fact, that's a side study you can do sometime. I had to take it out of my notes, didn't have time. But there are a whole list of verses where Jesus is just looking at people. Check them out. I need that eye contact. Keeps us close, keeps us connected, keeps us confirmed. Verse 63. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking Him and beating Him and they blindfolded Him and were asking Him, saying, Prophesy, who is the one who hit you? And they were saying many other things against Him, blaspheming. little movie trivia for you. It's an old Alfred Hitchcock thriller, North by Northwest. Any of you seen it? Any of you have? North by Northwest. There's an interesting, and we just saw this uh, the other night, which is why I'm reminded of this there's a scene where Cary Grant who's the the lead role in the movie Cary Grant's character is in a cafeteria by Mount Rushmore okay and he's there and 
And a woman comes in that, that you think is on his side, and then she's not, and perhaps she is later. I won't give away, because I know you're all going to run out and see this. But And she shoots him and kills him. Again, so you think. He falls down on the floor of this cafeteria. And there are all kinds of people all around. No one expects this to happen. A friend of mine I was watching this with said, watch this, and he runs it back. Keep your eye on this little boy. There's a little actor in the background probably seven, eight, nine years old, sitting there, and right before the gun goes off, you see him go... (laughs) He plugs his ears. The extra knew what was coming. Jesus didn't. Jesus was blindfolded, and they were striking him. He didn't know when, he didn't know where the blows were going to come, but they kept coming, and they'd say, Prophesy, who was that? Prophesy, tell us where the next blow is going to come from. And they beat him with sadistic blows. And Luke says they were blaspheming him. How can that be? Unless Jesus be God. They could scorn him, they could mock him, they could make all kinds of fun of him. But those of you who still struggle with or ask the question, is Jesus God? How can it be blasphemy? Unless Jesus was God in the flesh. The brutality, the blasphemy, it went on all through the night there at the house of Caiaphas. There's more we could say about that house. It's not important right now, but it was a brutal night. And in the early morning hours, we come to the third trial. First trial, Annas' house. The second trial, Caiaphas' house. The third trial now before the Sanhedrin. You see, Matthew tells us that all through the night, there at the house of Caiaphas, there was an ad hoc gathering of the Sanhedrin. The the men got together, some of them, not all of them, met there that night. Matthew 26, verses 57 through 68, describes this trial going on. The trial at Caiaphas' house. But it was an illegal trial. Based on their, it was a kangaroo court. Based on their own standards, their own rules for legality. No trial was to be held between sundown and sunrise. They would not hold trials at night, but this was going on at Caiaphas' house the whole time. No trial was ever allowed to take place during Pesach, Passover. The Passover season. They could not hold trials. They did. No trial was ever allowed to end on the same day it began unless the verdict was not guilty. And the whole reason for that was to let mercy settle in a little bit before they pronounced judgment. Every one of these and more, they violated as their, again, kangaroo court filled the night. And at first light, they convened the official Sanhedrin court. Have to do it in the daylight, but it's still the Passover It's still on trumped up charges. Verse 66, When it was day, the council of the elders of the people assembled, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council chamber, saying, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. Which was always the issue for Jesus. And if I ask a question, you will not answer. How does Jesus know? Well, it had been going on all night. That was already proven clear. But from now on, he said, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, Yes, I am. Then they said, What further need do we have of testimony? We've heard it ourselves from his own mouth. 
What had they heard? They heard all they needed to pin Jesus down for blasphemy based on their faulty understanding. But that's absolutely critical and you need to understand this. Jesus' self-declaration of His own divinity, Jesus' declaration that, that He was God, has now been verified by His enemies. What I'm saying is, you can't say that Jesus never said He was God. You can't say Jesus never claimed to be divine. Absolutely He claimed to be divine and His enemies verified it. This is the reason for His death. This is the one that they pin to Jesus before they pin Him to the tree. This is the issue. You claim to be God. It's the single causal factor in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. So now they haul Jesus across Jerusalem. They're in the upper city. That's where Caiaphas' home was. The upper city, which is southwest Jerusalem. They haul him now across Jerusalem, all the way to the north side of the fortress of Antonia. They're on the northern corner, the northwest corner of the Temple Mount. Fortress of Antonia was built by Herod the Great. As a massive military structure right there. Why right there? Well, he built it and named it after Mark Antony. Anthony and Cleopatra. Remember that story? Mark Anthony. So that he could get, Herod the Great could get permission to rebuild the temple to his own glory. And he built that there as a military structure saying, well, see, look, we've got, you can garrison your, your, your centurions and your guards right there. So there's not going to be any problem if the, if the Jews get uppity. No big deal. So that's why the fortress of Antonia was there. And we come to the fourth trial now as they haul Jesus over to Pilate, Pontius Pilate at the fortress of Antonia, chapter 23. Verse 1, Then the whole body of them got up and brought him before Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar. Lie. Lie. And saying that he himself is Christ, a king. True. Two lies and a truth. They knew Pilate could care less about the truth. (laughs) In more ways than one. They knew that he could care less about Jesus claiming to be Messiah, Mashiach, the Jewish Messiah, whatever, that's religion. I don't care about religion. So they needed more to justify bringing him to Pilate. And so they concoct these two blatant lies. He's misleading the nation and forbidding to pay taxes. Sedition and tax evasion. This guy, he's stirring it up. He's going to cause you problems. Of course, you and I know that Jesus said in John 18, verse 36, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, I would be a Democrat. No, he, no. (laughs) If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be Republicans. No, he doesn't say that either. Can I just pause and say, it is very interesting living in America these days and recognizing that Jesus could really care less about party lines. Now, He cares about morality. He cares about the issues. For example, the life of an unborn child matters greatly to our Father. He cares about righteousness. But He does not care who is in office. Except that He is getting done, the Lord, what He needs to get done. And I'm not saying don't vote, and I'm not saying don't care. I'm just saying don't get all wrapped up in politics and in earthly, temporal things. 
Because Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Jesus had no interest in sedition. And he obviously was not into tax evasion. Luke 20, verse 25, he said, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. You got a problem with taxes? Hey, render to Obama. What is Obama's? Who cares? You think God doesn't know? You think God's not capable of providing for His people regardless of our tax situation? Again, I'm not saying just hole up in our churches and hide out. I'm just saying don't worry. Because these are not things that ever... Jesus is bigger than politics. Jesus is bigger than the rise and the fall of nations. He's dealt with that through all history. Not a big deal to Him. Sedition and tax evasion, no, you can't pin those things to Jesus. Claiming to be God, that one sticks. And so Pilate asked Him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And He answered Him and said... Well, my Bible says, it is as you say, but the phrase is su leges in Greek, and it literally means, you said it. Thou sayest. In other words, that two-word phrase, it was an absolute affirmative, and it was a way of saying, what you said is exactly it. Yup, right on. So, are you the king of the Jews? You said it. Verse 4, And then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they kept on insisting, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching all over Judea, starting from Galilee, even as far as this place. Excuse me? From Galilee, huh? When Pilate heard it, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who himself also was in Jerusalem at that time. (laughs) Fifth trial. He now goes back from northern Jerusalem, back across to southwestern Jerusalem, where Herod's palace happened to be as well, in the upper city. The upper city of Jerusalem was a very wealthy area. And so Jesus is now dragged back across there for the fifth trial. Palace of Herod. This is not Herod the Great, it's Herod the Tetrarch. Remember Herod, whose wife was Herodias, and all that mess with John the Baptist? And he's in Jerusalem for the annual pretentious Passover that he would seek every year. Verse 8. Now Herod was very glad when he saw Jesus. Obviously he got over his earlier fear that Jesus might be a, uh, a resurrected John the Baptist. I don't know if you recall that, but Herod was afraid of that. Here comes Jesus after he killed John. And Jesus is, you know, it's like, wait a minute. This is kind of like what John was doing. He's baptizing and he's teaching and the people are gathering around him. And and Herod was afraid. Not anymore. Now he's excited. He wanted a floor show. It says he had wanted to see him for a long time because he had been hearing about him and was hoping to see some sign performed by him. That'd be fun. (laughs) Verse 9, he questioned him at some length. But he, that is Jesus, answered him nothing. And the chief priests and the scribes were standing there accusing him vehemently. Herod doesn't get a syllable out of Jesus. Jesus stands there in absolute silence. This is the same Herod who beheaded Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist. 
The same Herod who was an adulterer with his wife Herodias. I love what John Corson said about this. John the Baptist comes along as the voice, the mouthpiece of God, right? And Herod chopped off his head and in so doing silenced the voice of God. And Corson said, Herod silenced the voice of God in John the Baptist, therefore God himself had nothing more to say to Herod. And it's a great point. And it is a serious point because if we cut off God's voice, if we silence His Word in our lives, if we silence His voice in our prayers, not praying at all, why should we expect God to be Gabby? Well, God never talks to me. You ever talk to Him? I never hear from God like you people do. Do you ever stop and listen? Do you ever open His Word? If you silence the voice of God in your life, there will come a time where God won't talk to you. Because you've made it clear you don't want to hear from Him. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 7, 11, 17, 29, chapter 3, verse 6, 13, and 22. The same verse is repeated. The same words are repeated by Jesus seven times to each of the seven churches of the Revelation. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You don't even need two ears, just one. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. What does that tell you? Seven times Jesus says this to the church. Seven times across the entirety of the church age. Seven times over 2,000 years as though He were saying a complete broadcast. You have every opportunity to hear the voice of God. I'm going to give it to you seven times the number of completion in the Bible. I'm going to give you my voice such a complete amount in the church age. And all you have to do, if you have an ear to hear, listen to what the Spirit is saying to and through the churches. Even into the tribulation, He's still doing it. Revelation 13, verse 9. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. Of course, He doesn't say, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches, because by that point, the church is gone and the Spirit is gone. But He is still speaking. He is still trying to get people to listen up. By the way, when people do stop listening to God, when they cut off God's voice, what do they start to do? They start mocking. Look at verse 11. And Herod with his soldiers, after treating him with contempt and mocking him, dressed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. And in verse 12, Pilate obviously got a kick out of that because Herod and Pilate became friends with one another that very day for they had been enemies with each other. Pilate got Herod's sick sense of humor as he sends Jesus already, already bloodied. Blows had been raining down on the face of Jesus all night long. And sends back this scraggly, bloody rabbi from Galilee of all places in a beautiful robe. How ironic. How sardonic. And Pilate thought it was great. Pilate and Herod were strange bedfellows with a common enigma. Jesus Christ. They didn't know what to do with him. So they mocked. So Herod scorned. And so some people do. Back to the sixth 
and final trial of the night. There before Pilate at the fortress of Antonia, back over there, verse 13 continues, Pilate summoned the chief priests and the rulers of the people, and he said to them, You brought this man to me as one who incites the people to rebellion. And behold, having examined him before you, I have found no guilt in this man regarding the charges which you make against him. No, nor has Herod, for he sent him back to us. And behold, nothing deserving death has been done by him. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. Now, he was obliged to release to them at at the feast one prisoner. Something Pilate did just to kind of keep things calm at the Passover. I have examined him, says Pilate, the highest authority in Jerusalem at the time, other than, of course, Jesus, who was the highest authority, period. But Pilate said, I've, I've, I've examined him. I've looked at the evidence. I've sent him over to Herod. He looked at the evidence. I've looked some more. I've talked with him. I've examined him. The word examined in the Greek is anakrino. Anakrino is two words put together. Anna, which means up and down, and krino, which means to sift or judge. I have sifted him up and down. I've judged him up one side and down the other, and there's nothing. There is nothing that he has done worthy or deserving of death. I'm going to punish him, which was Roman practice, and I'm going to release him. Verse 18, but they cried out all together saying, away with this man and release for us Barabbas. Well, he was the one who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection made in the city and for murder. Matthew tells us Barabbas was notorious. Pilate, Wanting to release Jesus. And I want you to note that. Pilate did want to let him go. Did want to release him. Saw no reason that this innocent man should be crucified. He addressed them again saying, again, but they kept on calling out saying, Crucify! Crucify him! And he said to them the third time, Why? What evil has this man done? I have found in him no guilt demanding death. Therefore, I will punish him and I will release him. But they were insistent with loud voices asking that he be crucified. And their voices began to prevail. And Pilate pronounced sentence that their demand be granted. Other gospel writers you know tell us he washed his hands of the whole thing. He said, fine, you want to kill him, you do as you will. In verse 25, he released the man they were asking for who had been thrown into the prison for insurrection and murder, but he delivered Jesus to their will. Pilate releases one son and condemns another. Barabbas. Barabbas' first name was Yeshua. Jesus. So you have Jesus Barabbas and Jesus, son of Mary, son of Joseph, Jesus Christ. Jesus Barabbas. Jesus bar Abbas. Bar means son of Abba. Abba. Son of the Father. Jesus, son of the Father, is Barabbas' name. Well, Jesus Christ, also called son of the Father. You have two options here. You have two sons of two fathers. Jesus said about Himself, John 5.43, I have come in My Father's name and you do not receive Me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. And I think he's talking there about Antichrist. But Jesus says, I've come in my Father's name. One Son, Son of the Father. Barabbas, Son of the Father. 
Jesus said in John 8.44, talking to the Pharisees, you are of your father the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. Well, they wanted Barabbas, the son of their father. Wrong father. Wrong choice. Pilate, he tries, obviously, Luke makes it so clear, he's trying to avoid this. And he, he banks on Roman law helping him out. He thinks, okay, Roman law says if someone's brought to trial like this, i got to punish him. got to do something to merit all this waste of time. So I'm going to have him flogged. I'll punish him, and I'll release him. In most cases, this punishment was flogging, scourging. The cat of nine tails with chunks of bone and, and, and stone and, and metal wrapped in the, the nine lashes that would be whipped on the back of the person and drug across their back 39 times, 40 times minus one. And that was typical for all men. The only exception to this would be women, children, and centurions. They were not flogged. Everyone else, that was typically what was done. And he obviously hoped by scourging Jesus that he might make an example of him, don't mess with Rome, and at the same time release him in his innocence which is all that Pilate could see. So far in this night, we've seen three different men exhibit three different rejections of Jesus. Caiaphas hated him. And some will do that. Some will hate Jesus. Some will hate the mention of the name of Jesus. Some will want nothing to do with Jesus. And they will crucify Jesus to themselves. Herod berated him as nothing more than a curiosity. He couldn't get what he wanted out of Jesus, so he mocked him, he scorned him, and some will do that too. Pilate abdicated him. Pilate was the one guy who had the authority to release him to freedom or release him to crucifixion. Pilate abdicated that authority. At first, he declares Jesus innocent. So why does he allow this innocent man to go to his death? He saw something in Jesus, I believe, that affected him deeply. But rather than bow to the Christ, he bowed to the crowd. The clamoring voices, the the minority that was very loud. And by the way, I do think it was minority there. The, The crowd stirred up primarily. It was members of the Sanhedrin. Primarily, it was people who were stirred up by them. It was their cronies. It was their friends that they called in. Meet over at the fortress of Antonia. We've got a guy to take down. No doubt, among the Sanhedrin themselves, they all had friends and associates that they had been talking to about this Jesus who's dangerous to Judaism, who's a threat to us all. And so they got their cronies and their friends there to shout, crucify, crucify, where a lot of the people, perhaps even at that time, were, were looking for Jesus. Where is He? Is He up on the Temple Mount? He's always here on the Temple, ready to teach. And, and we come here every morning because it's so good to hear from Jesus. Meanwhile, this is going on over in the fortress of Antonia. Jesus for Pilate was a hotbed uh, political issue. Because this crowd was ramping up and things could get heated very quickly in the Middle East, Pilate thought, i got to shut this down. I can't afford a riot. And so he abdicated Jesus to crucifixion. Now, Pilate, historically, Pilate lost his post. He didn't keep it there in Judea. He was recalled to Rome. He was censured there for poor leadership. He ended up moving to Sicily. 
And it said that in Sicily, Pilate lost his mind. The Pilate began to go insane. Tradition says he sat on the shores of the Aegean Sea, repeating over and over and over, there's no fault in him. There's no fault in him. There's no fault in him. Ultimately, Pilate didn't just lose his post or lose his mind. Pilate lost all hope and committed suicide. Because when given the chance, he abdicated Jesus. Some people will come so close, right up to Jesus, but they won't release Him. They won't release Him to freedom in their own hearts. They won't allow Him to move about their jurisdiction. They'll abdicate Him to others. Jesus said in John 8.31, If you continue in My Word, you are truly disciples of Mine, and you will know the truth. And the truth will make you free. And you may recall Pilate in John 18, verse 38. Pilate asked Jesus, what is truth? Jesus had already said earlier that night, John 14, 6, I am the truth. When Jesus says you will know the truth and the truth will make you free, knowing the truth is not head knowledge. Knowing the truth is knowing Jesus Christ. Again, drawing near to Jesus, closeness with Jesus. I am the truth. Well, Barabbas is released. Jesus is handed over and so began the walk to Calvary. Verse 26. When they led him away, they seized a man, Simon of Cyrene, coming in from the country and placed on him the cross to carry behind Jesus. Quickly, very interesting, Simon of Cyrene. Cyrene was a city in North Africa. Tradition tells us that he's the first African Christian of note. It's not the Ethiopian, but it's Simon of Cyrene. Mark 15.21 gives us additionally the names of his two sons, Alexander and Rufus. I've always wanted to name a son Rufus. Cheryl wouldn't let me do that. (laughs) Alexander and Rufus are named. Why? Because Simon and Alexander and Rufus most likely all became believers and were well known in the early church. And as a matter of fact, we have in in Romans 16, Paul's writing a letter to the church there in Rome. He says in verse 13 of Romans 16, Greet Rufus, a choice man in the Lord. A few years pass and we have this son of Simon who is now a choice man in the Lord among those believers there in Rome. And Simon of Cyrene, think about this, was truly the first person to take up his cross and follow after Jesus. He did it literally. I think it changed his life. Verse 27, And following him was a large crowd of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting him. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, stop weeping for Me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren, and the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. And then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Jesus, I think, is referring to two things. He's implying the fall of Jerusalem that was imminent. 
But I think he was speaking to something far worse and much greater that has yet to happen. We talked about this a little bit on Sunday, but it is the tribulation and the, the destruction of Jerusalem that happens at that time at the very end of the age. Why do I think that? Isaiah chapter 2 verse 19. Prophesying. The, the prophet said, Men will go into caves of the rocks and into holes of the ground before the terror of the Lord and the splendor of His majesty when He arises to make the earth tremble. That's the day of the Lord. Hosea chapter 10 verse 8 tells us they will say to the mountains, Cover us! And to the hills, Fall on us! And John tells us that day is coming when the tribulation begins and the wrath of God is poured out. It begins early on. In fact, the first half of the tribulation, you Bible students, is called the wrath of the Lamb. Revelation chapter 6 details what happens in the first half of the tribulation. And Revelation 6.16 concludes with this, They said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. And Jesus said, you know, if they will do what they're doing right now as He's, as he's being led out to Calvary, if they will do this when the tree is green, in other words, when the very life of all life is here, What's going to happen when the tree is dry? Ever toss a Christmas tree into a burn pile and toss in a match? It's one of my favorite things to do every year. It explodes, doesn't it? A dry Christmas tree. You throw a match into that, and it is. that's why they say it's so extremely dangerous to have dry Christmas trees in your homes because they, they will go up like a torch. What's going to happen when the tree is dry? I, I, I can't help but feel like we live in a world with dry trees. Where the life is going out, where the life is not appreciated, where the life is, is not held in high regard anymore. And the tree is getting very, very dry. Peter said in 1 Peter 4.18, If it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Verse 32 tells us two others also who were criminals were being led, led away to be put to death with him. Verse 33, and when they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. Now on the cross at Golgotha, the Latin word Calvary. We are now at the skull. By the way, that gaping skull face remains in Jerusalem today. I don't know how people can look at that hillside and not know exactly where it took place. And that big, kind of spooky, it's right above a bus station. It is. It's bizarre. You're looking at the place of the skull and what you really want to hear is on a hill far away. You know, you want to hear the old hymn and you want quiet and you want peace. Smoke coming up. You know, people shouting mostly in Arabic because it's a Palestinian bus station. It's right there. I shared with our group this last time. I think it's perfect. The place of the skull is right above the lost in the world. That's why Jesus came. And the noise and the cacophony and the smoke, Jesus came to save. The place of the skull was there. Crucifixion. Crucifixion, you've probably heard about it. We've talked about it in here. The Romans didn't invent it. The uh, Romans just perfected it. 
It was not meant as a quick execution. Crucifixion was meant to last several days. It was designed as a torture that would ultimately result in death. Jesus' back, torn by the scourging, now pressed against the upright shaft, and every time He would move, it would reopen those wounds, even if they had had time to close up. He leaned against that upper shaft. It's called the stipes. The stipes typically would stay put. They would leave that. You would see in these different areas. And on the road leading out of Jerusalem, which was to the north, by the way, of the Temple Mount, there was a road that led out of Jerusalem. And at that location, there would probably be several stipes just left standing, used by previous prisoners, blood dried and caked on them, perhaps bits of flesh. But why, you know, why build a new one when you've got that one there? It's secure in the ground. And they would drag along with them then the crossbeam called the patibulum and they would attach that to the stipes and they would pull that crucified person up there his back torn his brow likely still bearing the crown of thorns nothing in scripture ever tells us they took it off and those thorns can you imagine with every wince of his face which would happen with so many different avenues of pain as Jesus was on the cross every time he winced those thorns would dig. Every time. His arms spread, his hands nailed to the crossbeam, again the patibulum. And when the nails went into his wrist, they wouldn't nail into the hands because literally it would rip right out. So they had to nail into the wrist between the, the two bones there. And in so doing, typically what happened was the large median nerve was severed. When that happened, bolts of fiery pain would shoot relentlessly up the arms. His feet nailed to the stipes. This was done so that the crucified could raise himself up to breathe. But the pain on his feet would become so unbearable he'd have to lower down again. Sometimes they would put a a small shelf just above the waist so that the crucified could get up onto that shelf and and rest just for a bit. But still the pain in the feet remained and you'd have to settle back down just to give relief to that pain, drawing more pain in the wrists and in the lungs. In fact, that was the major impact of crucifixion. The body weight would lock the respiratory muscles so that you could not breathe. And you had to pull up and it got to be where it was involuntary. Even if you didn't want to pull up, you had to. Your body would just naturally do it. And death on the cross came from one of a number of ways. It would come either from shock from all the eventual blood loss, exhaustion, the person would just bleed out and die, dehydration, they would give less and less wine, sour wine, to the person, heart attack, which is what we believe happened with Jesus because as John tells us, the sword was put into his side by the centurion and blood and water both came out together as a sign of a burst heart. Or asphyxiation, when a person finally just lost all strength and could not pull themselves up anymore and they would just asphyxiate. But that would take two to three to up to four days. And little known fact, flies and insects 
scavenging birds often started picking at the victims. I won't say any more about that, but they would do that before the victim was even dead. Sometimes even scavenger animals would come along and climb up and begin to chew on them. And you might say, well, thank goodness, you know, that didn't happen to Jesus. He was only on the cross for six hours, right? I haven't even shared the worst part of it. Because the worst part of the cross was not the physical anguish. It was the sin. The sin that was so heavy. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Imagine that. You've never, ever known guilt. You don't even know what guilt feels like. You've never known remorse or shame or the ugliness of committing sin. You've never been there. Oh, sure, you've gone through temptation. All it did was show how strong you really were. But you've never sinned and never felt it. And suddenly, all the sin of the world, of all history, is dumped on you. And sin comes with it. All of the bag of junk and garbage that we all hate so much, that God hates so much, which is why He hates sin. All that guilt... That shame, that sick feeling, all at once is now on Jesus. Imagine never knowing separation from God. Ever. We've made choices in the past in our lives. Before coming to Jesus, we've lived separate from God. Jesus never had. Well, how do you know He was separate from God? Is it because He cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? No, actually that's not why. I believe there was separation from God between God and Jesus when He was on the cross because there is no sin in God. In Him is light. And there is no darkness at all. Therefore, if there is sin, God's not there. And Jesus covered with sin would be separated from the Father, sin-soaked, cut off for the first time not just in history or His lifetime, the first time in eternity. And in all this, Jesus spoke some of the most gracious and amazing words of His entire ministry. The words on the cross. The Gospel records seven phrases of Jesus there on the cross. Amazing. Just seven. Matthew 27 and Mark 15 tell us that Jesus quoted Psalm 22 and said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I think the primary reason that he said that, he may have in his humanity expressed that that longing, uh, that desire to be close to God, but he's also speaking Psalm 22 verse 1, and in so doing saying, read Psalm 22, it's about me. The Psalm of the Cross. And so Matthew and Mark, they both tell us that single phrase, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? John gives three more personal statements in John 19, verses 26 through 30, when Jesus says, Woman, behold your son, and son, behold your mother. As he's on the cross, has the presence of mind to care for his mom. And look down and say to Mary, Behold John. And to John, behold Mom, you're going to take care of her from now on. Obviously, I'm not going to be here to do that. And Jesus says in John 19, I am thirsty. And Jesus says the sixth phrase, It is finished. 
Well, Luke records an additional three statements of Jesus on the cross, and the first, I believe, is absolutely the greatest. Verse 34. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Jesus says, forgive. The freedom from America, freedom from religion, sorry, freedom from religion foundation in America. That should tell you something right there. The Freedom From Religion Foundation, in response to the Concerned Women of America's Easter display in the Wisconsin Capitol Rotunda, put up their own display, a big yellow sign with huge words that says, Nobody died for our sins. Jesus Christ is a myth. That's their happy Easter message. And I read that in my first reaction. I was ticked. I'm just like, oh. Let's rent a bus and go to Wisconsin. Want to go? Want to go? Straighten some of those freedom from... It's not freedom from, anyway, it's freedom of. But of course, they're expressing their religious view. And I'm more and more convinced atheism is a religion unto itself. It's the religion of rebellion and rejection. But I pondered this and I realized, you know, Jesus died for every member of the Freedom From Religion Foundation. He died for all of them. You can put up a sign that says Jesus Christ is a myth that doesn't change the fact that He died for you. It doesn't change the fact that His hand offers you grace. His nail-scarred hand is extended even now offering grace to the very people who would rebel so dramatically against Him. He died offering forgiveness to the most rebellious, spiteful, hateful, scoffing, mocking unbelievers in all of the world. He died for them. And I have to believe that. Why, Rick? Because He died for me. And 1 John 2, verse 2 says, He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. And His offer of forgiveness stands waiting to be received. Maybe even by one of us here tonight. He offers forgiveness. He says, all you got to do is take it. That's all you got to do. But what's more amazing to me than the forgiveness that Jesus offers for all the sins of man, and that's, that's huge. I mean, that's, that's mind-blowing. I, I can't even fully comprehend that. But even more impressive to me then forgiveness for far-off sins or distant sins or the sins of the collective or the sins of people across time and all of that is that Jesus spoke forgiveness to the vivid, immediately cruel. When He said, Forgive them, Father, for they don't know what they're doing, He's talking about them. The soldiers who nailed Him. The scoffers who are scoffing. The people who are spitting on Him. Those who are laughing at Him. He says, Forgive them, Father for they don't know what they're doing. Charles Spurgeon said, let us go to Calvary to learn how we may be forgiven, and then let us linger there to learn how we may forgive. You want to know how to forgive the most heinous thing ever done to you, ever perpetrated against you by another human being? You linger at Calvary. You stay there at the cross. Stay a little longer. Don't don't go away so quick. Stay there. Watch Jesus. Even as He spoke words of mercy and words of grace 
they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. Verse 35, and the people stood by looking on, and even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, he saved others. (laughs) Let him save himself, if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine and saying, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. Now there was also an inscription above him, this is the king of the Jews. Truly, he was, but it was there as a joke. It was there as a dig against the Jewish people and a slam against Jesus. And the whole scene is incredible. And yet, in view of all this sneering, jeering, mockery, Jesus says, forgive. Father, forgive them. They really don't have a clue. They have no idea what's going on. Let us linger at the cross that we may learn how to forgive. Jesus had said in Matthew 5.44, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And you see, that's just what He did. He didn't just say to do it, He did it. And He showed us how to do it ourselves. They mocked Him saying, You saved others. Save yourself. What they didn't understand is He couldn't save Himself if He was going to save others. It was the very fact that He did not save Himself that saves us. Verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at Him saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered. I love that Luke gives us this story. Oh, how, how big a hole would be in the Gospel message if not for this story. The other answered, rebuking him, said, Do you not even fear God since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? And indeed, we are suffering justly for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. It was a Jewish thought. Spoken in faith. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. A dying man's final wish. Don't forget about me. Remember me. I love Jesus' answer. And He said to him, Truly I say to you, Today you will be with me in paradise. Not at some distant future time when the kingdom comes, but today you're going to be with me in paradise. Jesus said, forgive. He also said, live. Live. He speaks life there on the cross to the criminal who is crucified next to Him. Not a distant promise of awakening someday from soul sleep. Not a way of saying, yeah, you know, I'll encourage you here. I'll, I'll try and keep your name on my, on my list. It was an immediate live today. Live today. Just a week or two, about two weeks before this, John chapter 11, Martha said to Jesus about Lazarus, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And that day, Lazarus rose from the dead. Not some future day. Oh, he will again. Lazarus died twice. Bummer for him. But he is going to now be resurrected twice. 
And the second time for Lazarus will be for all eternity. Listen, the thief died at Calvary. We know that. His legs were broken by the Roman centurion. John chapter 19, verse 32. The two, the two criminals are still alive. They break their legs. Gonk, and down they go and they asphyxiate and die. Jesus was already dead. We know He died that day, but that day, good to His Word, true to His Word, Jesus would be waiting for Him in paradise to receive Him in. What was that like? To be the criminal. To die. And to open your eyes and see Jesus standing there smiling at you. Come on. It's paradise time. And you know what? Paradise wasn't the best part. The best part was Jesus said, Today you'll be with me. And that's life. That is real life. Jesus said, Forgive. Jesus said, Live. Verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour. So that's noon. And darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. Because the sun was obscured and the veil of the temple was torn in two. Phlegon, the Roman historian... In the fourth year of the 202nd Olympiad, he wrote, there was an extraordinary eclipse of the sun. At the sixth hour, the day turned into dark night, so that the stars in heaven were seen, and there was an earthquake. So this non-believing Roman historian writes about at the exact time of the death of Jesus, yeah, the weirdest thing happened. There's a total eclipse of the sun at the sixth hour. And a great earthquake hit. Bizarre. Matthew and Mark tell us the veil was torn in two, not just torn in two, but from top to bottom, as though God's own great hand seized that thick tapestry and ripped it in half. And the Hebrew writer says, Hebrews 10.19, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which He inaugurated for us through the veil, that is His flesh, And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. Jesus, in His death, what a remarkable thing. He is the great high priest. The great high priest who who said, forgive. Jesus has the authority of the great king. And He says, live. And finally, Jesus, the great prophet, Prophet, priest, and king, the great prophet, now for a second time on the cross, quoted prophecy that he himself had inspired a thousand years before. Forgive, live, and finally Jesus gives. Look at verse 46. And Jesus crying out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last Psalm 31, verse 5. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus' final words were Scripture. Jesus quotes now another prophetic psalm. Psalm 31. Why would Jesus direct us to Psalm 22 and now direct us to Psalm 31? What's Psalm 31 about? David wrote it when the men of Keilah, who he had rescued from the hands of the Philistines, Betrayed him to Saul. It's the psalm of betrayal. 
And in it, verse 5, David writes, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus, having been betrayed by the very ones He had come to save, now repeats this line out of the Psalm of Betrayal. Why? I think it's the single best phrase for dealing with any and all betrayal. If you've ever been betrayed by someone in your life, ever been hurt by someone, ever been turned in by someone for anything, ever had a friend turn against you, the best thing you can say is, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. People lying about you, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. People stirring up dirt, maybe at work, they're saying things that's not true. What do you do? How do you fight back? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. You know what those words are? They're the words of a victor as opposed to a victim. The victim sits around and goes, Oh, oh man, they betrayed me. Jesus never does. He just commits his spirit to the Lord. It's all yours, Father. And He gives it all over to God. It's a statement of choice. And note that Jesus chose when He gave up His Spirit. Jesus chose when He died. He chose the exact moment of His death. He was not a victim. He was the victor. When the time came, He claimed His victory, giving His Spirit up to the Lord. He chose the exact moment of His final breath. When he had accomplished all he had come to do. John 12.32 he said, And I am, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. And you know that began immediately? I mean immediately, right in that moment. Look at verse 47. Now when the centurion saw what had happened, he began praising God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. What else did he say? Certainly this man was the Son of God. And you got to put that all together. In the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, one of them says, and I forget which one says it, but one of them says that he said, surely this man was a Son of God. The other one says that he said, surely this man was the Son of God. Put it together with what Luke tells us. He began praising God. He starts worshiping. This centurion was a believer, gang. And he starts to praise God, saying, certainly this man, this man was innocent. He saw something in Jesus. And right there, right there, Jesus began to draw all men to Himself. And I really wonder about this centurion, if perhaps we'll meet Him someday in heaven. And all the crowds who came together for this spectacle when they observed what had happened, began to return, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who accompanied him from Galilee were standing at a distance, seeing these things on a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. And I love that old cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners is slain.